Festival producer Trent here. Uh, a word of warning before this episode. Uh, this is a open and honest discussion with Robin and Josie and Rebecca Payton and James Wythe about depression and dealing with grief. And uh, so it contains discussions about things like suicide and uh, murder and some some topics along those lines. So just to warn you, that is what's coming up today in this episode. And to kind of, for some relief at the end, we're joined by Johnny and the Baptists and their entry for the Isolation Eurovision Song Contest. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to drop a tip in the jar for the Stay at Home Festival. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmicshambles to support what we do and get some extra goodies and stuff as well. So here is today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to Shambles Stay at Home Festival. Josie has had a lie in this morning, so she's still on her breakfast. I know. I feel really wonderful, but also blurry eyed. I can't believe it. It was a surprise gift. And all the while I was having dreams that I was getting married, but nobody was there. So, I mean, my psyche didn't didn't repay that gift. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I think that that gets rid of a lot of problems for the disco and all of that kind of stuff. I was having dreams about going to a rowing club with Mark Gatiss. So there we are. Oh, lovely. Was, uh, yeah, there was, and it was it, there was a lot of stuff going. There was a very heavy narrative going on there. Yeah, it was both sad and happy, and uh, we we never really got right. I don't even know. I don't know why I was going to a rowing club. Anyway, there we go. That's our dreams. This is one of our special shows in which we'll only be talking about our dreams, which is uh, one of John Waters' uh, top, I think, fifty most boring things. <laughs> is I quite like them. I I like hearing those things, but as long as we don't preface them too much with, I had the strangest dream. I think as well during lockdown, dreams seem more exciting because everyone else's daily life is so um, repetitive and similar. So if someone says, I dreamt that I got a parrot and I ran around the world, you're like, oh my God, this is nearly as if somebody's done that. Well, I think that's an interesting thing, actually, because certainly some of the older people, older people that I know, that I know people, in, people their, in, their, in their late 80s and 90s who, who are, um, have, are predominantly housebound anyway. Um, they will often say when I talk to them on and go, I had the weirdest dream. And I think you're right. I think somewhere because you have such a, a, a small area of, of, of experience when you get to that age in terms of day to day, your your brain goes, well, don't worry, I'll take you somewhere. And then oh. or sometimes it doesn't take you somewhere very nice, but it's like it goes to so many places. Yeah. But we don't know what we're talking about. In fact, we know so little about dreams that I believe we could probably write a best-selling dream dictionary, like all that other crap that's out there in so <laughs> many repeated books. Yeah, but when I was a teenager, I felt like the most incredible scientific tome where you'd be like, hang on, hang on, a ball? A ball? Okay, wait there, wait there. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I, I love the uh I, I i used yeah i used to have a real habit i mean i i never enjoyed them but i have but i have i've got about 30 or 40 of them which you used to do at bad book club various very strange uh yes um and they always come around to roughly the same thing which is dental work or something sexual and quite often the dental work is sexual so <laughs> there we are um i've got a show and tell i presume you haven't because your show and tell is your lying i've got one this is my Isobarding de Brunel, Britain's greatest engineer mug. Uh, and it's got a little potted thing. And the reason I got it is because a fan gave it to me because I used to do some material about uh, the character of Isobard King de Brunel and how he was basically like, we're going to do it anyway, so deal with it. 
and um, yes, and somebody gave this to me to commemorate. So there we go. Well, oh, that is great. And you've have you seen the cartoon? No, there's a, a book. brilliant book. Bob Godfrey, who, who uh, is, is best known to a lot of people for Henry's Cat and Rhubarb and Custard, but also oh. did lots of... He did, and I think it won an Oscar for, wow. for Best Animated Short, or indeed, yeah, I think it was a short, and, and it's just this brilliant with all these songs about Eisen, Eisenberg Kingdom oh. Brunel. I think that'll be a treat if you... I'm going to find a link for that, because that, that'll perk up your day later on. Well, and also we should give a shout-out to Andrew O'Neill's band, The Men That Can't Be Blamed For Nothing made a song about Isambard Kingdom Brunel that's basically, again, him being like, oh, yeah, you say I can't do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> the whole song is like that. Um, so, yeah, you should, people should. Yeah, they're good. They're, they're a very entertaining band. The um, also very important thing, which is yeah. happy 14th birthday, uh, Spencer. Um, Spencer is is uh, uh, him, him and his mum have been watching these uh, pretty much every single morning, and he also listens to Infinite Monkey Cage, which I'm happy to say we're recording a new Infinite Monkey Cage uh, tomorrow, which should be out very very soon. Oh, we'll exciting! Do notes again. It is. It's going to be so weird. And if if we have the guests who are currently confirmed, if they manage to not lose their nerve or listen to a previous episode and decide it's not their kind of thing, we've got a really good uh, first episode in terms People of guests. People don't have any excuses. They're all in. Well, that's what we're relying on at the moment. <laughs> alibis are so. That's what the best-selling book at the moment is. Your alibi during lockdown because <laughs> that would get people out. We wouldn't have the guests we've got on today if they'd had that book out. So I'm glad we haven't made it yet. Um, so also to mention, uh, as well as happy birthday, Spencer, and thank you both for 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 watching this regularly. Um, so mention the tip great. jar as well. Uh, the tip jar at the bottom. This is the final week that we're doing daily shows. Uh, we will still be making stuff uh, throughout the lockdown and beyond because we always make things. Uh, but this is the last time we're doing uh every single day of the week and thank you very strange much. isn't it yeah i think we should still day. we'll still meet up at 10 o'clock every morning just to have oh. a zoom chat <laughs> of course and to talk about yeah cinema and that's dreams. like magazine yeah <laughs> dream <laughs> cinema and our latest mugs i'm back on uh uh, Kurt, Kurt, uh, uh Kurt, i should uh, remind we should always twin it, it was the, the when I found out there were two of these mugs direct from Vancouver, Breakfast of Champions. Um, My kind friend. And also, uh, well, so, yeah, Patreon is another thing. If you can support us via Patreon, that means all the other stuff that we make throughout the year. And we just, we play all that money into making stuff. The Book Shambles series, the Science series, a, a, a series about uh, gravity with uh, which Tim Peake is in and various others. So please, if you can support us via Patreon, that's great. Of course, for everyone, it doesn't matter if you can't support us at all. We always want to make stuff that's free to access as much as possible. And that's what we've, we've been aiming at. There might be some changes in that in the next few weeks, as we found out we're probably not going to work again uh until 2021 um so that's that's i think i've done everything oh and also today with very special guests we have very very special uh musical guests so today's musical guest is Johnny. Uh, and oh there we are and this is today's musical guest the musical oh. we intro what what the video is are, there, are, are you about to play it no later but oh. do it's uh, the North Macedonian entry for the Isolation Song Contest. Uh, it's a lovely band that we know happen to look a bit like myself, Josie mm. and Paddy, called Eclipse. With a very, K. With a K. Very popular in North Macedonia. And the song is... Uh, no sun, no fun, no, no problems. Yeah, no sun, no fun, no problems. And it's, it's pretty good. And Johnny and the Baptist do a daily podcast at the moment, that, so you can check that out as well. 
We're We've done it. lots of promo now. We should start. Your, your basement flat is like the it's like the Bloomsbury set of 2020. I like it. <laughs> uh, the uh, um, also uh, today, I'll tell you a little bit about what I also mentioned tomorrow. By the way, we have one of my favourite comedians in the world who should be famous around the world. He's very well known, well, very famous. Thank you, Robin, but I'm on every show. <laughs> I love it when you have a line; it really peps up your ego. <laughs> um, the uh, we have Sean McAuliffe on tomorrow. Oh, wow! He's so funny and brilliant, and, and I think smart we... and astute. He's yeah, he's a brilliant writer. His his chat shows and his shows in Australia. I remember the first time I saw one, I went, "Why aren't there more shows like this in the UK? Why aren't there any shows like this? It's the best thing ever." And then two weeks later, my friends in Australia went, "Yeah, that's been cancelled." Yeah, it was. Uh, he is so so good. So we've got Sean McCullough and Jess Hitchcock on tomorrow, and um, now I'll tell you a little bit about today's episode. And uh, today's episode, we are going to be talking about um, depression, and we're going to be talking about grief. And I am going to just preface that with uh, a little bit of a warning that we will be talking uh, about things which will include we're going to be talking about murder and so it's not there will be though we will uh, it's going to be I think a very very interesting conversation but I do just want to warn you that some of the things and some of the questions we've had in from people as well um, deal with uh, things of, 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 of great sadness and I just want you to know that before we start that conversation um but we have two brilliant people who are joining us. Uh, in a moment, we're going to be joined by um, James Withy, who has written, I, I think, probably the best title for a book about depression is How to Tell Depression to Piss Off. And uh, that is what he does in his book, which I, I, I read a couple of days ago. And uh, he'll be joining us shortly. He also edited together the recovery letters, which many of you not, might know about as well. Um, we're also joined by my friend Rebecca Payton, who uh, I've known for about uh, over 20 years now. I think 20, nearly 25 years, probably. Uh-huh. And um, and her experience is uh, she she did an incredible monologue called Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister. And to give you a bit of the background, when, when Rebecca was six years old, uh, her father died. And when she was in her 30s, her sister, Kate, was murdered. And she I highly recommend you look at TEDx Brixton. She did a great talk about that. And I interviewed her for the, the book that I did uh, a, a year or so ago. And. Um, there was something she, when she said about grief that I'm just going to say, she said, grief is a big plate of grisly food and you can eat it or not eat it, but it's not going to go away. It's just going to sit there and congeal. And that's, you know, just give you some sense of this is something that she's looked at a great deal. So welcome to the show, Rebecca Payton. Well, good morning. It's extremely nice to see you, folks. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it is, it's, it's ideal. It's lovely to see you. And it's... um. And I, I, I hope you don't mind if we go straight into this. Uh, uh, all right. The um, and then don't worry, we'll also talk about your magnificent acting career as well. We'll cover both. Oh uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Now let's talk death. We 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 know this will be on your show reel eventually. Uh, it's going to be a great performance. <laughs> Why do you think I wash my hair? <laughs> <laughs> three weeks. Ooh. I watched it three weeks. I was like, oh, God, I'm going to have to wash my chuffing hair. So I've washed my hair to make you all look bad. Okay. Yeah, and we do, we do. You, you, you already. You're at the top of the pile here. This, um, I wanted to. I, the first question I wonder. We were talking the other day about David Aranovich's piece, which uh, he wrote a piece, which you know, yes, oh, God. It, it, it was a, it was a, a kind of an answer to a, a piece that had been earlier on in the week about, I think, by a journalist. I think it was his name was James Marriott or similar, and and he he said, oh, I don't think I'll ever have the same feelings I had as when I was young. And uh, David Aranovich wrote, wrote a piece saying, oh, actually, all the good feelings and amazing feelings and deep feelings I've had have been since I've been middle aged. But it was so it, intentionally. It, provocative as well wasn't it it was so deliberately done 
to kind of not care about younger people who've experienced extreme circumstances. It was like, young people don't have anything. It was like, oh, God, please. It's a very odd, because I kind of responded on Twitter, I engaged with you first, Robin, without even knowing what you were talking about. <laughs> and uh, then I gradually worked out what it was about. And I actually ended up in a conversation with David Aronovich. Um, well, and I always said, I haven't read it. I've just seen the title of the article which I felt was, you know, that's title writers. And then at the moment, newspapers and papers need to drive revenue. We are, my sister was a journalist. I feel very strongly about journalism. We are stuffed if we can no longer fund as free a media discuss as we possibly can. I mean, it's, democracy depends upon it. Having said all of that, so, you know, headline writers need to write headlines, they need to drive revenue, I get it. But the title in itself just made me jangly because I think it's a lifetime of finding oneself in rooms with people who you're at a party and people will be chatting away and they'll go, of course, you know, kids this or kids that. And I, these days I know, say for example, one in five people are sexually abused as a kid. I'm like, there's someone in this room, unless it's a really small party, like would feel like a big party these days. But you know, there is somebody in this room, almost certainly statistically, who's been through something that you may not understand or they may never have spoken about. It's beyond my comprehension. It's not my life experience. I just know loads of people, you know, who've been through all kinds of things that I haven't experienced, basically including everybody I know. No, there is no one childhood. Like there is no one adult life. And it was interesting because I've also read James's book. Um, so, you know, we're doing very well, Robin. And it's interesting because, you know, talking about the universality of unpleasant emotional and mental states, we are in things together, but you do experience, you know, James in his book is suggesting various tricks, various ideas, various ways of thinking or being. No, he's not saying this will work for you, mate. And a lot of the world wants to say, this is the way the world is. Let me tell you how the world is. Let me tell you how adults experience the world. Let me tell you how kids experience the world, because this is how I experience the world. Yeah, so much of and it. That for me, and I understand you can't do anything but, but write your experience or what you've gathered. But just a small thing anywhere saying, I think this. I felt that um, for people like me, Josie and I were having a little bit of joke about class before we started because I'm very middle class, um, as I hope you can tell. This isn't my house, it's my mother's <laughs> house. Um, and I'm not going to presume to know anything about Josie's life. I'm not even going to presume so much about James's life. This man here actually happens to be my second cousin. I, 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 I can't know his experience. Yeah. We have had very similar life experiences, but we are profoundly different people. You cannot speak for other people unless they ask you to, or unless you give the caveat. I've met a lot of people and it seems to be anyway, I could go on. I'll stop. I, but I agree so wholeheartedly. And so often when I see people writing, for example, on Twitter with such authority about the world is this, I always think if you just change it to in my experience or to me, or I have had, it would be true exactly. but because you are like so determined to like make these categorical statements and include everyone it just becomes nonsense and unhelpful and, yeah. and I think as well like you know we have this as performers where the only universality you really have is when you're so true to yourself that other people can recognize it you know it doesn't work if you come out and you say this is the yeah. world this is what goes on it, it only works if you come out and you know tell a story through that kind of personal exactly. lens. And people attach themselves to you then. That was my experience with Kate's murder. My direct director, I worked with. with a brilliant, crazy German guy called Martin Barselt, fabulous man. He was like, we have to make it profoundly specific, profoundly specific. And again, it's something that I think you can read in James' book. It says, it's, 
I have had this experience. This is the conversation I had. I'm not telling you you had this conversation as well. Mm. I'm telling you I had this conversation. This is what it meant for me. And then people come to you like like dogs or children, like we all do. You feel somebody's opening their hand and offering you a sugar lump. I love it when that happens. Maybe I'm a horse. <laughs> But, you know, you come towards someone because their work speaks to you, not because they are telling you this is their, you know, this is what you experienced. And in fact, it's, a, you know, the, the, the world is word is bandied about. I certainly use it too much. But that in itself for me is a form of like gaslighting where someone's telling you this is your experience. Like people will say the classic one for me, of course, and a lot of people experience this is, you know, childhood and or being university and or your 20s, the best days of your life. Um, well, maybe they will have been. But my God, that'll be bleak from my point of view. It's lovely if yours were. I'm not denying your experience by expressing my own experience. And that's I think what's interesting about being a columnist, as I am not, is that points of view about politics, about culture, about all of these things. I think you can say this, that and the other, making general statements. But if you start to talk about personal experience, just caveat, the sh caveat it. And it doesn't take much, like you say, Josie, you don't have to do much. And then it is a very interesting thing that you feel welcome to consider because it's fun. I other people's experiences are fascinating despite the fact that I like talking I'm really interested in what other people have experienced you know it's fascinating to me and my word it helps even if it's profoundly different it can help so much just to get you through the day but that is when it's offered not proclaimed I think yes, when it's shared vulnerably yeah so, well I want to ask something that's very specific to you which was when you first performed sometimes i laugh like my sister you you told me that when you came off stage uh, you turned to marta and you said um i've realized who's that whose voice that was and you said yeah, that no, was the yeah. voice of the six-year-old that no one listened to oh. now that to me is so I, i'd like to talk about your experience a little bit and, and about anything that and as, as you always say in terms of advice it is different for everyone but you have had a personal experience which you can at least you lost your father when you was when you were six years old and you feel that that parents were not sorry not but adults were unable to necessarily communicate with you and, and that communicating about death is difficult i think at any age to any age but i think your experience of being a child who had had something so terrible happen to them can you tell us a little bit about you know about that experience and and, and what you have taken from that i think um and I, I, and as I've, I mean, I recognise this as a kid. I sort of understood that it's something I shouldn't speak about. And I read about this in other experiences that children have of everything from shame from not having the money to buy this, that, or the other, or to do these various things that other families around you can, um, through all kinds of domestic discomfort, unpleasantness all the things that go on at home that can be difficult through to dangerous. And I mean, it's there everywhere that to talk about it, it's the same thing I think that I experience at parties, which I, I mean, I, I can't make this joke anymore. No one gets to invited to parties now, but <laughs> back, in, you know, in 1460, five or six weeks ago, when we used to go to parties, um, I find that I'm deeply inappropriate a lot of the time I've managed to, um, I think alienate people because I'm, because I, I think I'm considered to be quite a mood killer. Because if something occurs to me, I'll say it. Not something about my recent trip to the toilet, but it's, it's you know, it's if it's if it occurs to me, why shouldn't I say it? If you want to talk about your lovely new T-shirt and you want to talk about your wonderful new marriage, why can't I talk about whatever it is that moves me? As a kid, it's quite difficult to work out ways of making it palatable. Um, so as an adult, 
you can break the news gently i find i break the news very gently to people about my sister's murder i say i've got some, i literally have to say i've got some bad news um something from my life um so i'm sorry it's a bit of a shock but i think i should tell you because i do make jokes about it i do talk about it and i don't want you to feel bad and then i say to people i'm really sorry but i've made a show about my real sister's real murder and then i pause it's a classic way of breaking bad news in the medical profession <laughs> and um but as a kid you haven't got the experience and i found that i associated my trauma with me so that adults found me terrifying um partly because we we have been children um so we think we can help a child of course all parents hit a place where they go oh my word I don't know what to do about this my I wasn't bullied but my child is being bullied I, I don't know how to deal with that I don't know how to talk to them I don't know how to cope but of course your child is always someone else so if it's something very profound that is t viscerally terrifying to us all anyway as death I mean I'm not pretending I don't find death terrifying um as a kind of concept and as a kind of rupture in our discourse it can it can trash any party it wants to um I, I think kid it's just really frightening for the adults and consequently what we're what we tend towards obviously I don't what other people tend towards is shutting up changing the subject that if we can't see somebody else's trauma the trauma is now gone and that that is helpful and I do think there's a place for containment I think we all have to learn to contain ourselves our emotions that's a part it's you know anybody any parent of a two-year-old will tell you that one of them has got to learn to contain their emotions and so is the two-year-old but it's it takes real effort to do so. So to always clamp down on the emotions rather than talking it through. You see great parenting. You see people talking to their kids and saying, so why are you screaming at me? Can you just try and get your breath? Why are you screaming at me? Oh, I'm screaming at you because you want the purple one. There isn't a purple one. <laughs> and, you know, you, talk, you, you know, exactly. The purple one's not there. You can't have the purple one. You've, You've eaten it. You've already exactly. eaten it. <laughs> you, ate, you ate the purple one. It wasn't even edible. But, but when it comes to death, most of us find ourselves inadequate in the face of what to say. I know I do. And mostly when people tell me about something horrendous in their lives, all I can say is, I'm so sorry. That sounds awful because that's the truth. But I think to say that to a kid is to privilege them, is to say that they have better understanding of something maybe than you have. Because even if your parents have died, if, you know, my experience was I might have known some adults whose parents have died, but their parents died when they were 41 when they were fully adult, when they were even 27, fully adult. Um, I, they, they were never going to be that child. And consequently, the child that I was, I think they found terrifying. That was my experience of it. And I think the only way to deal with that is to try and treat it respectfully, as if it's mysterious, which it is, and to allow the child their emotion and whatever it is they have. And it won't be nice, because it isn't nice um yeah and me at parties allow me to have my scream maybe pop me in another room maybe it's the very me. reason that i have party. i have parties is just to invite you and to the, <laughs> the chaos i've like i've enjoyed every pigeon. moment that happens i like to think i'm a good soundtrack from the basement well we're going to introduce james now uh as well um james with you who i mentioned before uh, uh the latest book is uh, how to tell depression to piss off and previously edited the recovery letters and um james for, thanks for very much joining for, us for joining us um, <laughs> Um, what is now a family party it turns out it's Rebecca's second cousin <laughs> very good agency work from her there um, the first thing well I think there's something which is as I said at the beginning in, in introduction you know, I've, I've known Rebecca for I think it must be at least 25 years now or, or certainly not, not, not far off um, what for me was so 
interesting was it's only probably in the last 10 years and even less than that that I've really got to know some of the things that were going through her her mind and her life experience for the whole of that time that I've known her and this seems to me as, as, as someone you know you 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 have uh, you, you say a lovely thing about depression at the beginning of your book by the way every time I think I've beaten depression I haven't but every time I think depression has beaten me it hasn't and Again, that bit about talking, that bit about whether it's the communication of someone who's had a terrible loss or the communication of what is going through your mind when you're going through depression or when you want to work. We do seem to have so many secrets. And, and I wonder, you know, your book does seem to be a good way of giving people also some of the tools, not really those people who are going through periods of depression, but also those who might know people with depression about how to communicate and how not to feel shame. Yeah. I think you know the tendency with, with with depression is to is to not talk about it. So you know one of the things that depression will do to you is is to tell you that you're git and that you're disgusting and that and that depression is all your fault. So so it's like, well, why why would you want to talk about that? Why would I want to suddenly reveal that to loads of people because I feel so ashamed about it? So actually, you kind of got to do the opposite of what it's telling you to do, which is which is really hard. So I think Stephen Fry once talked about it as having, you know, like a massive boil on his bar. It's like, well, why would I tell people about this massive boil? And it, and it, and it feels exactly the same. You know, it's like, well, why would I want to, I want to you know, talk about the fact you know, that I feel suicidal and I, and I feel disgusting and I feel, you, you know, like this is my fault? Why would you want to do that? But actually, you know, depression never has your best interests at heart. You always have to go against what it's telling you because it's a git. You know, it, it's not it's not a friend, it's not an ally. You know, it's a prick that hates you. So you know, doing what it tells you to do is is not gonna it's not gonna do any good. So it's like one of the things that's really difficult with with depression is that is that your sort of uh, innate gut feeling just disappears because your gut feeling is going, oh, well, I should be doing these really strange things that I should be, you know. So actually, you can't trust your gut feeling anymore, which is a really strange state to be in because we rely on that kind of gut feeling all the time. So you have to kind of work against, you know, what your gut feeling is telling you and what your mind is telling you, which which takes a lot of strength. But actually, once you once you do that and start expressing that stuff that feels unexpressible and that feels shameful, that actually you start to kind of find a path through it. So. And the other thing that happens, just with any kind of coming out process, you find that someone goes, oh, do you know, yeah, I'm on Prozac as well. And, and you know, I had a friend that died and, you know, and on and on and on and on. Um, it just needs some people to be the leader of that and then things to open up. But it's it's hard, you know, it's really hard when you're feeling exhausted and hopeless to to make that kind of jump to go, oh, okay, I need to I need to go and talk about it. But But it's... But it's the way forward, you know. So it's that real dichotomy of what you think you should be doing, which is just being a bed under a duvet, you know, and sipping hot chocolate, um, or kind of speaking about it and getting help. Is there also you mentioned Stephen Fry there, and I, I talked to some mental health nurses a while ago, and they said one of the problems sometimes when you see Stephen Fry talk about that, Stephen Fry talk about that, is that people then go, well, of course Stephen Fry has depression. He's Stephen Fry. He's so great at everything, and that there is a problem, which is that people almost don't feel that they deserve depression or could have depression because they're not good enough. I know that's a you know, it, does that make sense? 
that they're going well i can't they, i can't have depression because I've, I've just got something going on in my head it can't be depression because that's a thing that happens to, to great people yeah i i think no you know this is you know well-known people coming out with 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 depression is a real double-edged sword and um and actually you know even i think within the sort of depression community if we are such um there's a there's a kind of there was a time where you know bipolar depression was being talked about much 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 more than your communal garden you know clinical depression which is what i have you know and someone once said to me oh I was, you know almost excitedly oh have you got bipolar and i'm like i'm like no I mean, i'm sorry to disappoint you on this occasion <laughs> you know nah i haven't i've got i've got the you know the normal one um and you know the boring one so Yes, I, I think that it, it, it helps massively to have that conversation. But yeah, I think there is a kind of maybe that's something fantastical, and and it gets mixed up with oh, and aren't people really creative with mental health and all that kind of stuff that that you know I have I have big problems with you know because actually when I you know when my depression is really bad, I don't feel creative. You know, I can't get out of bed. Yeah. You know. I can't go to the shops, I can't brush my teeth, you know, I can't go to work, you know, I don't feel like penning a 45 stanza poem, you know, it's just, I, that's not, that's not how it is. Um, so yeah, I think there is a real difficulty with that. I think to begin with, it's really helped. And then it's be, kind of come, you know, a slight kind of, oh, this, you know, this, this famous person, that famous person has depression and, and, you know, then, then, you know, can, can that be for me? You know, so yeah, there's, there's a problem with that. Can I, this, this might be a, a banal or a stupid question, but when you are in a, a period of depression, do you have, a, how able are you to part of your brain to go? I know what's going on, but I can't, you know, that, that fight, it, there's that thing where sometimes when people go through anxiety, they can try and argue with their anxiety, but their anxiety seems to exist in a non-verbal part of the brain. So you can shout at it as much as you want, but it's just in there going, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. now in the same way, I wondered whether in, in depression, whether you are, you do have different viewpoints where part of you going, I know what's going on, but I can't that trying to fight that other part. It, it, is, is that part of the experience? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, so when my depression is really bad, you know, 95% is going, uh, you're a git, go to bed, you know, uh, you go, go and jump off the nearest cliff, you know, go and do all these kinds of stuff. And the 5% is going, oh, you know, do we recognize this? Is this maybe this is depression, you know? So, yeah. And the trick is to listen to that 5%. But it takes a lot of practice to listen to that 5%, you know, because the 95% of depression that's hitting you overhead with a sledgehammer repeatedly and saying, well, actually, it's your fault that I'm hitting you overhead with a sledgehammer. You know, that's really hard to listen to. If you've got something going, it's your fault, you're a prick, you're a prick, you're a prick, you know, constantly like that, then it's hard to go dig down to that 5%. So, yeah, it, it's, you know, it's a really exhausting kind of mind bend that you have that you have to do. Um, and the more that you practice it, I think it easier it gets. So I'm, now I'm a bit better at going. It doesn't stop the 95% being painful and powerful. It doesn't, it doesn't stop that, but it just means that I am able to listen to that 5% a bit more and go, ah, okay, this is, this is what it is. So this is depression. And I kind of treat it as something a bit other and go, okay, so this is something that's, you know, yes, inside my head, but is now attacking me so that I can go, okay, so this is what's happening and I need to do X, Y, Z. 
but you know also sometimes I, I don't manage to do that you know and it's all right if it defeats me for a day you know or two that's okay you know and that's not that's not giving up and that's not weakness but yeah kind of and kind of what i've done in the book is to try and give like you know those that five percent those kind of tools to kind of start hitting back because you've got to hit back and hit back and hit back and it's not about you know i know i'm not going to win the battle because I, I know i'm not it's not going to go completely but actually if i can you know tool up that five percent with different things to to go at it, you know, so like different weapons, different shields, you know, different techniques, ducking, whatever it might be, then, yeah, then it becomes that 5% doesn't necessarily become greater. It just becomes slightly brighter and more noticeable, you know, and I can go, ah, so rather than being smothered by the 95%, I can go, oh, okay, all right, you know, that 5% that's sort of hidden deep down, it's a little brighter and I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to remember what I need to do. Well, your book's very. Uh, we were talking before, before we, we came on air. You know, some of the titles in it, and the way you know, how to punch your cuckoo. You know, seeing this this cuckoo in the nest. You know, that was. Um, I wanted to ask. This is for for both you, really. Which is one of the things as as, as both you've kind of reflected on. Which is one of the problems is I think very often people want to they want to have an answer and then they don't have an answer. So when you Rebecca bring up uh, either your sister's murder or 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 the death of your father or you James bring up the, your, your depression, people want to go oh. As you said oh i had a friend who tried this or i know this answer what for, from your personal experience for both of you what is the what are the good ways of, of reacting what what is the i know there's no right way but in those different situations when someone can't immediately go do you know what i haven't got a story that offers repair and i haven't i can't immediately empathize because it's not my experience rebecca what what do you think is you know what what advice can you give to people in those situations Sometimes we'll talk about something that they that is painful. They don't often talk about for reasons. You know, it could be um, someone maybe has got a, a drink problem, and they want to explain why they wouldn't like to go somewhere. So they don't want to go to a pub, for example. Can we go to a cafe? And they might explain themselves. Then they might just say, "Listen, I my relationship with alcohol isn't good," and you might get the sense that they're just giving you an explanation and they're moving on, and they change the subject. In other circumstances where it's not something that I feel they're saying for a practical reason, people are often saying it because they want someone to engage in some way. And my experience of people coming up to me after the show, which they endlessly have, to talk about their own bereavements or bereavements um, or imminent deaths in their family and things like that, they're not doing it so I can go, all right, anyway, um, do you like this top? It's actually from a charity shop, but you can't tell. I think it's uh, you know, a very nice brand. That's not why they're doing it. That's not why they're doing it. They are in some way asking for help. My response is, I, I often, if someone tells me something traumatic, my, my, my basic pattern is in, in life, if someone tells me something traumatic, I hope I mostly stop, hear what they've said. I might respond with something like, you know, um, if it's somebody, yeah, you know, I remember your mother dying, Robin, and I, you know, I was able to connect with you because you're my friend. So talk about it maybe in a more profound way. But even if I hadn't known you to say, I'm so sorry, that sounds terrible. Now, sometimes somebody will say, and I have had this experience, people will then say, actually, no, the person who died was a tosser. And this is a release. Now, this moment is not the moment for you to tell that person that they should be kinder about their dead relative. 
nothing to do with you. Even if you're in an agony in your own loss because you've just had someone exactly, you know, your mother's just died and this person in front of you is saying, oh, I couldn't give a damn. It isn't your moment to correct them. It's their experience that, that comes back to what we were saying earlier. It is their experience. It is valid. You may think, I think you're in some psychological trouble. But you know what? They may be right. I've got plenty of people who've got who've had bereavements and they're like, I'm so glad now they're gone. Of course, it's painful, but it's better without them. They're allowed that. The majority of people are finding it difficult and suffering and all of that. And I think the thing to do is to express your sorriness. And then I will sometimes say, I might say, can I ask what happened? Can I ask, you know, where they lived? Have you been able to see them? And I then will say, you don't have to talk about it. We can talk about me because I'm fascinating. <laughs> but that's my line. That's what I say. I realize other people aren't quite as entertaining as I am. So they might want to choose another line. Um, but I say something to give people options because I think the important thing is not to corner someone. Don't corner someone in what you want the conversation to be. So to say, you know, I'd love to hear more about them or what happened or how's your dad or do you, I can't remember, do you have siblings? And it's okay. It's okay if I can't remember whether you've got siblings. I, that's all right. It's okay for it not to be perfect, I suppose. Say something and keep it open and allow them to go. I don't, yeah, that's, these, are, these are my very simple ideas. But, that's, but also I think it's sometimes in that relationship that you have after a show is you very therapist has in to give answers, but you are a stranger that they trust. Oh, it's not going to continue. It's literally they just wanted to go up to you. And, and I, I would imagine everyone here has had an experience where someone has merely wanted to impart something which they can't tell their friends. And I think that, like a confidant is yeah. what you are. You're somebody, and, and it's very interesting. And I can imagine that both of you have this where you have made this work, which is partly based on you coming to terms with something very big and difficult. But because of that, people see you as this expert and this beacon. So then that inadvertently becomes a part of your life is okay, I am now also this, this sort of, un I, I have that responsibility now. You know, because I've created this work and people identify with it, I now have yeah. to take on. That was one of the things I, I felt very, yeah, sorry, yeah, I felt very much show is that had to be, um, I had to be allowing people to respond however they responded. You can't make something like that. Basically open people with a can opener, which the show does, and then say, oh, I see your problem, mate. Yeah, it would be such Stuff a I mean, like I could appreciate the urge, appreciate the urge to do that, to be like, no, yes. I've done all this sharing. This has been difficult for me, guys, you know, but I think it, 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 you can't help it, can you? You've created this thing and it does create a kind of community around it. Sorry, you were about to say as, yeah. as well. I, th I think, you know, you can't underestimate, you know, how difficult it is for people to open up about that stuff. So, you know, often when I do book talks and people come up afterwards, you know, it's like never underestimate how hard that is yeah. to come up to a stranger and say, you know, this is my experience, you know. It's like, so for me, when I'm ill, phoning a helpline is a nightmare, because, you know, if I manage to do that, because I've got to speak to a stranger. So, yeah, you do have that degree of trust when you've spoken. And actually, you know, really... I think it's actually relatively simple. It's kind of what Becca's saying, which is that, you know, say say you're sorry. Say that sounds really shit. That sounds really awful. And ask some questions. Ask some gentle questions, you know, just to open things up. You know, I don't think it's enough to go, oh, I'm really sorry. And then kind of, you know, you're sort of standing around in an awkward silence. That's that that's not enough. So, I, you know, I've learned this from a bit of experience, you know, kind of going, actually, if you ask some questions and go, so, you know, how does, how does your depression manifest for you? You know, how do you manage? Are you on medication? What kind of support are you getting? 
and just, you know, gently rolling out some of those questions. Mm. But don't underestimate how hard it is to reveal something. So I've had people that have never talked about their depression until they've come to me after a book tonight, you know, ever, ever, ever. So no one knows, you know, parents don't know, you know, sons and daughters don't, nobody knows. And do you know what that is? You know, it's, it's, it's such a privilege that actually you've got to be careful with that. So actually, yeah, an expression of, do you know what, that, that's really, that's really shit. That's really terrible. I'm really sorry that, that you're going through this. And then some general questions really just helps to unfold things. Cause actually when you, cause if you just go, Oh, so, so tell me about that. People are going like, what, what bit, what, you know, what bit am I telling you, you know, but actually you need some kind of gentle, specific questions, which feels much safer for people, you know, to talk about. So that's, that's kind of what I tend to do. But, um, and then also it's then not going, oh, you know, you're, you're not then going, well, I'm an expert and I shall tell you what you need to do with your depression. You need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so yeah, a beautiful baby's arrived. Hello. <laughs> uh, just, just so everyone watching at home, uh, at this point, the uh, we, we can all see uh, Josie's uh, lovely daughter, but you can't. But you will be able to hear her every now and again. She normally comes in at exactly this comes in at exactly this point, forty two minutes in. To say, Mum, you told me the show only takes forty two minutes, which is also what we say to producer Trent. Um, we've had some some questions in from people, and yeah. we have one which is includes a story. I'm only going to praise the story um from from this person but uh they've had to deal with a lot and uh they um 13 years ago their uh niece and nephew were murdered um and then 12 years after that uh the their their sister um died and then about a month after that their dad died from the same illness from pancreatic cancer they then shortly after that lost another friend and uh there's a there's a lot of details that i'm not going to go into in, in in terms of the amount that they dealt with including the, the loss of a partner and the, the 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 end point is that this person says it's reaching the stage that i'm terrified that i'm just a complete jinx and what if i end up messing up what i have with everyone else that i know uh when do i stop crying at random when do i get to not hear the nagging that everything is my kind of therapist do i need so you know there's a lot of things and, and as i said i'm not i'm not this but when i read that this morning the things that this person has had to deal with um are an in- incredible as you know rebecca and, and you know the, but so much balancing and that point of thinking this is my fault and then also the point of you know the therapist thing and i know that's a very difficult thing in terms of also finding out who might be the right person that's a very difficult battle so rebecca can i ask you first of all that uh you you've actually seen the full the the the, the full story of this person as as has james i wonder if you could give some some advice uh, um, i might because i think it is it's a, to read the email today it just well i think i think one of the things that um our circumstances of covid has done is make pe- a lot of people feel wow this is really unfair life is really unfair in a way that I think maybe when terrible things happen to you out of the blue, you recognise life is profoundly unfair. Um, and the, uh, for my, by my lights, there's no point looking for fairness. You can mm. seek justice in court and things like that. But you can, there is life is essentially unfair. I personally have no religious belief. So I, I feel it's just stuff that happens. We're organisms and stuff happens. Things, something, some people, some different things happen to other people. To other people. Um, and I, I find that philosophy extremely comforting. It's not that I am 
everything is out of my control, but there is very little I can control. So I can be as kind as I can be and sometimes unreasonable. I can work as hard as I can, given that, you know, I certainly uh, struggle with depression as well. So sometimes I'm astonishingly unproductive. Um, one of the things that's useful for me that I hope might help this person is that I don't, reading the email, this is not somebody who's done anything wrong. This person has been human and made decisions. We all make decisions. And we might look back on those decisions, as I know I certainly do, especially at three o'clock in the morning and say to myself, why and why did I do that? The person you were at the time made a decision based on your circumstances at the time. Now, they, you might... They try their best given the circumstances. Everyone is trying their best given the yeah. circumstances. I sometimes have to remind myself when I find myself in it, you know, when I first knew Robin, I was a very promising young agent and I basically had a pretty much a breakdown and had to get out because I couldn't cope and I walked away from I mean look at Robin now he's in his attic I could have been somebody um I but I had to get out there was no other way for me to I tried to manage the situation again reading James's book it's fascinating I tried to manage the situation in so many ways of my life at the time with the pressures that I had and who I am. And I, I have the misfortune to be me, just as you all have the misfortune to be you. And you can rail against your nature if you like, but you won't ever get anything else done. Mm. Because you are as you are. Of course, I you can make incremental changes, yeah? I always say your life is your punishment or your reward. And yeah. like accepting who you are and trying to enjoy it or not. Uh, yes, you know, exactly. Trying to understand things or not. Totally. And if you don't, their life is their punishment because they're yeah. not going to be able to deal with it. Yeah, and you can change things. And I think again, James's book is a wonderful, sort a wonderful of, sort of manual on what things, some things you might change. But essentially, it also says there are things you are going to have to accept, and the battle is pointless to to battle against certain things about yourself. So for me, I've had I've been really lucky. I've had the most magnificent. My mother has had my mother's first baby died. My my father was killed eighteen months before my sister was murdered. My sister, my mother's sister, died of cancer. My par my mother's parents died within days of each other. My mother has had this catalogue of really, by Western standards, terrible things. She doesn't feel. Sometimes I think when she said a few whiskey, she might feel got at, but she basically doesn't feel that it's her. And I think it's a really useful lesson that I might offer to this individual. My mother hasn't done anything wrong. She's a kind person. She's a good person. She's extremely shouty about politics at the moment. And that's a bit wearing, seeing as I'm locked down with her by mistake. Um, but, but she hasn't done anything wrong. It's just that's the way it's gone. And I think it's really important. I certainly learned this from friends of mine um, who have disabilities, their relationship with the circumstances they find themselves in and how they try to look at it. It isn't a punishment. It is just what has happened and how they are trying to make their lives. And I guess that's how, when I think about jinxing, this person is not a jinx. They have had some awful things happen to them and they did their best at the time. You're not trying to screw yourself up in the future. Very few of us are genuinely trying to mess ourselves up next week, you know? <laughs> James, I wonder how, how you feel about and, and also whether there's, can give any advice to people about because I, I think therapy is a very difficult thing because many people I know have been to a therapist it didn't work at all because it was the wrong person and it was the wrong form of therapy whatever it might be or it might be the, the right form of therapy but it's the wrong therapist it's it, it that itself is not that you're absolutely. when it goes wrong the first time yeah absolutely so I mean I, mean, I I've, I've been on kind of both sides of the, so I, I trained as a trained as a counsellor and 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 have had Oh, you know, bucket loads of counselling, and, and still in counselling now, and with and with a psychiatrist, <laughs> I've got it all covered. I've got it covered. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> you know what? Finding, finding the right therapist to express that stuff that she's been through is really important. And, and you know, and not to kind of judge the feelings that you're having. You know, it is okay to feel monstrously angry about what's happened to you. And it's okay to feel that it's monstrously unfair. And it's okay to feel that it's your fault. You know, that is all good. You know, that, that is exactly the emotions that you should be feeling. And I think the trick is to express those emotions to somebody. Now, finding the right counsellor is really difficult. And you've got to go through an audition process, basically. So you've got a, a lot of counsellors these days will do free sessions on Skype or, you know, free sessions in person. Um, and, yeah, the money is hard to come by. You know, if you can get the kind of the golden kind of egg is trying to get some low-cost counselling with somebody that you connect with. Um, so, but you've got to do a bit of research to find that person and not be afraid to meet up with somebody and then go, actually, this isn't right. Or have a couple of sessions and go, it's it's not right you know do not feel obliged because you're paying that person to then carry on with that relationship because a therapists understand that and b it's not going to work for you so the relationship with that person is everything that's where you know the degrees of healing come is through your relationship with that person as it does with lots of other our relationships but in the counseling relationship yeah audition them you know in a kind of fairly brutal way, can I? Am I going to open up to this person? You know, do I feel that I can talk to them? Do I feel like I'm going to get something out of this? And then, if not, move on and find somebody else. You know, negotiate fees. Do it on Skype. It's, it's often cheaper. You know, and do a lot of research into finding the right person. You can go through an NHS route, but you know, um, which I've done myself. You know, I waited, you know, two and a half years for some um, cognitive behavioural therapy. And then walked out on the second section because the guy was an idiot, you know. So it, it, it's, it, this is tough, the NHS route. So if you're able to afford um, a private route, now there are, a lot, there are some places around the country that will do subsidised fees, that will do things like, you know, pay what you can. And, that, and those, if you can get hold of those, then that's fantastic. So I got hold of one. It was slightly out of my area, but I emailed and say, I'm slightly out of your area. But, you know, can I just squeeze in? And they let me squeeze in. So you have to do a bit of research and crucially audition and find the right person you're going to open up to talk, to be able to talk with. When yeah. I was Thank young, you. I found uh, a counsellor via a training scheme. Training and scheme. So, and so because she was still in training, it, it, there was no cost. And it was really, really helpful at the time. And I know that those go on as well. So it might be a useful thing. Um, and obviously, you know, with the same caveat that if you if the person doesn't feel right for you, you shouldn't stay on just because it's sort of cheap. For you. But yeah, it was very helpful. Absolutely. And um, we've got some other questions. This is uh, from someone who would like to says, I found accepting feelings of grief extremely difficult and instead I end up distancing from all feelings and seriously depressed. Is it important to feel grief or do we all cope differently? Rebecca. I would say, and I ain't no professional at anything at all, but um, my my understanding of the way people think about this and I think I speak as somebody who has resisted and resisted and resisted those feelings. And I don't think it's done me much good um, that they are a natural part of life. It would be curious for maybe one of us to own a piece of jewellery that a friend had given us or a pen or an important photograph. The only photograph we might have of a relation who's no longer with us. 
And for us to lose that thing and for it not to disturb us in some way, I think some people might find that loss relatively easy, but a lot of people would find they're connected to that object. How much more when it's a human being? And of course, grief is, I presume this person might be referring to the loss of a person. Grief also comes with the loss of a relationship, having to move, uh, jobs, all sorts of things. Grief is there. In fact, we are dealing with small griefs all the time and they disturb us. Um, the, the resistance to what are very bleak feelings that you feel might take you out, might overwhelm you and make it impossible for, possible for you to carry on living is extremely frightening. And so I can see why people resist. But my experience of it is that resistance is futile. I didn't realize I was going to say that, but it really is. Not only is it futile, but in the end, it will come back. I think my experience, say now, where I very much find myself, um, I don't mean now in lockdown, in fact, lockdown is slightly easier for me. Pre-lockdown, when everyone was having a normal life, <laughs> I struggle. I really struggle to be productive, to find meaning, to find point, to see my friends. I don't contact people. I don't respond to messages. Hi, everyone I know who I never see. Um, and that, I think, is born of a resistance that came in childhood. And then my struggle to uh, essentially replicating that experience when my sister was killed it's I think often why therapy is interesting or as James talks about in his book talking to people often people with a similar experience is incredibly important is to have somebody else there not only are they witnessing you as we were talking about earlier on but they are looking you in the eye it's as you might teach a child to swim I remember my father in fact opposite on the green that's out there opposite here teaching me to ride my bike dad would run along when I was about five run along holding the bike because my father was as he was, he would at some point mysteriously let it go. And I'd pedal on for a while. And then I'd realise he'd let go. I'd look back and fall off. It was a pattern we repeated many times until I could ride a bike. But I knew, first of all, he told me he was going to be holding on to it. And he was. But I knew he was going to let go of me. And he did. And then when I fell over, he was still there. Um, obviously, he was a bit rubbish when he went and died. He wasn't there anymore. But before he went and died, um, also in this village, I had him there. And I think to have people who can be present to you, some of us are lucky to have people who can bear it around us. Sometimes you feel you can't talk to the people around you. And so a professional person who can walk with you, you're always alone, but people can be with you, shouting from the sidelines, sending you texts. Certainly, as this person reveals, they feel it could cause them to um, have periods of depression, which um, if someone's describing it as such, it isn't a good thing. It isn't a nice thing and it doesn't help. I would say unpacking that grief to sound Californian is vital. That's what I think. I don't know what you'd say, James. Yeah, I, I think I would say the same. So, so my, my father died when I was five. So, um, yeah, so probably, yeah, within 12 months of a... Uh, of Becker's, uh, Becker's dad. It was a great year for our family. Six months um, of the day, in fact, it was. Yeah, marvellous. <laughs> I I think you need to try and do things at the right time with grief. So, but actually, if you keep running and running and running and running away from it, it's going to come and bite you in the arse. You know, um, I, I, I do think that. Um, but I think you need to do it gently and in stages when it when it feels right. So, I think sometimes the mistake with grief is, um, I, I tell you what drives me mad, is is that someone's had a bereavement, they'll go to the doctor and suddenly they'll somebody will recommend, you know, cognitive behavioural sessions six weeks immediately afterwards. And it's like, you know, people, you can't function, 
you know, you can't function. You know, your, your daily existence is to try and get through each day and get a meal, and you know, if you can eat. So, you know, counselling at that point ain't going to do a lot of good. You know, it's, 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 it's in the latter years, you know, that the grief starts to hit. You know, immediately you need your basic needs taken care of. Um, and, then, and then later on, be appropriate and feel okay to then talk about it. I, I do feel that talking about it to whoever is really important. I do. Um, and I don't think there's a, an end point to that. So I kept thinking, certainly with, with, with my dad, that, you know, that there would be this sort of nirvana point where, you know, all the grief would go and everything would shine and I would feel totally okay about the fact that my dad died at five. I don't feel okay about that. I ain't going to feel ever okay about that. But what I do is I tackle it when I need to. So, you know, I've learned that when I want to cry about it, I will cry about it. And when I want to talk about it in counselling, I'll talk about it. And when I want to read a book about it, then I'll read a book about it. And I'll go on, maybe go on to Facebook and I'll read, you know, there's a group, you know, just about parents that have died and I'll maybe log into that. So it's finding the bits of support at the right time for you. And it's all right to get that wrong as well. You know, um, you know, grief, you know, grief is, is a tricky thing. Um, but I, I, I do think when it feels right to tackle it and talk about it, tackle it and talk about it. Um, because otherwise it's like this demon and it's following you and it's following you and it's following you. And, and there's a real danger, you know, there's, there's, you know, we talk much more about um, people that experience something called complicated grief. You know, so whereas they've had a very traumatic grief experience and then their life has got more traumatic, so it may have been addiction or homelessness or transience, whatever it might be. Um, and that often is because it's not being processed. So when Beck and I's dad died in, in the 70s, you know, there was nothing. You know, no one talked about it. There were no, so, I mean, I mean, really nothing. You know, death was barely mentioned, let alone any kind of you know, therapy for kids it was just it's not possible you know you're lucky if you've got fish fingers it was just it was out of the way um but you know these days there's there's, there's much more around but do it do it at a pace that's right for you but know that if you're blocking it and bearing it and bearing it and bearing it it's it's gonna it's gonna come up and and bite you um later on in life and, and it's awful that that's that that's the case i think there's, there's an inch this is i don't think the same as what that that saying which does seem that they're really trying to avoid it they're physically trying to, to avoid but i think there's another side to grief as well which is sometimes where people get so worried about whether they're feeling the right kind of grief as well that almost becomes its own neuroses where because yeah. for some some people the, the grief can be very very deep when you when you lose a parent or whatever when it when it is within its its natural and for some people they think I, i'm not feeling enough and then they can be this so, so it's a need you know I, I think not beating yourself up as well too much about going am i feeling the right kind of is this the wrong grief am i i've just done a joke you know when people sometimes i mean you rebecca you have a very dark that that bit where in the midst of talking about something bleak there will then be a joke and people sometimes go no 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 you're not allowed jokes now i mean i think that's one of the problems as well which is i i had a when i did a show about uh ther- involving therapists and stuff it was interesting what one therapist said to me they don't feel that there should be laughter within the uh therapy room and the other says no i, I think you know that that part of it so there are different kinds of jokes there are jokes which are avoiding the reality and there are jokes which are taking the reality head on as well but they're still jokes mm. but what the thing about that is well if you do make a joke in a therapy room that is avoiding something let's have a look at that mm. what are you avoiding it why are you what are you avoiding why are you avoiding it is it useful is it not useful it's fascinating how much of this rests on what are, makes other people feel comfortable 
I should be grieving in this or that way to make other people feel at ease. My mum, my mother is not a crier. If she does cry, it makes her wretch. It's disgusting to watch. And um, she, she said, as a 38-year-old widow, she said she knew people were watching her to see her break. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She didn't cry at my father's funeral because she want, She wanted to contain herself. That she and I couldn't be more different in this way. Mm-hmm. It's her prerogative. She has never done. I think she's never appeared. People will look at her and think that she's fine and everything's great. I kind of think, to a certain extent, knowing James's mother very well as I do, they're not entirely dissimilar in this way. They present as very sort of sunny, in control, frank people. I don't know what went on behind closed doors in James's household. They're my family and I don't know at that point in their time. These people certainly didn't know what went on behind our closed doors here. There is no correct way of doing it. We do things differently. Still, we do things differently. I'm in lockdown with my my mother and my brother. We've all been through very similar stuff. Man, are we different. That's okay. There is no way of doing it. And I think that policing of the self I think that can be born of lack of confidence. I mean, and I lack confidence in all kinds of ways, but not when it comes to talking or expressing things about death, because that's been my, that's my main thing. But lots of other things, I'm not quite sure what's socially acceptable. I'm not particularly good. I mean, I have washed my hair, but I'm not particularly good at dressing up and being like I'm supposed to as a woman, for example. I lack confidence in that. I have to remind myself there is no right way of doing it. <laughs> you know, there, there is no, and there, most things there aren't. When it comes, say, to medical procedures, there is a right way of doing it. Driving a car, more or less, is one way of doing it. It's the right way to do it. The rest of it, the emotional stuff, it's your tapestry. Oh, man, yeah. I think that the, the yeah, habit of, you know, in interviews where you go, wow, you're sticking on the one bit of the story where you're hoping that person is going to break. You are so waiting for the money shot of crying. And I've seen that. I've been in studios where I've gone, you're not even telling the interesting bit of the story, the bit of the story that's useful. You're keeping someone trapped in the horrific moment because you're going, oh, they haven't broken yet. We haven't got them. Where's the, where's the money in this bit? Yeah. Yeah. And how much more affecting? I was watching an interview the other day. It was about it was about um, carers. It's about the work of carers, a particular uh, part of the country where they've changed their method of sending out their care workers to take care of their elderly clients, and they've totally changed their methods. So we're just looking at it, and there was this couple talking out through their sitting room window, and the woman had had cancer treatment, or was still having cancer treatment, I think, and so they were talking about how they've been working around that, how she'd had to go into hospital, although they were trying to avoid that. They'd got tried to get everyone into the community, into their own homes. And she was talking in a relatively mundane, mundane way. And then she just started crying. And she said, I'm just so grateful you've helped me so much. And it's interesting, Robin, that to me was so much more affecting. She was talking. I mean, essentially, it's an acting. I'm not saying she was acting, but it's something you learn in acting. Talk about a cup of tea and break down in tears is far more affecting, actually, than talking about a horrendous incident, because the horrendous incident is so big and is what we naturally do. We naturally tend towards reflecting on the mundane. And she was just saying, I'm so grateful. And and out it all came and that's and even you know as a news item it's more interesting and more engaging it really caught my eye and my imagination to think about her circumstances in these difficult times i think james we've got uh, just one more question uh sorry we're out of time and i don't want to end this but we we, we have to which is this is actually from uh when, when we put out with i'm sorry we didn't deal with everyone's questions but i hope we've dealt with a lot of the ground that was in a lot of other people's questions uh as we said at the time you, we obviously we weren't going to name people but this is someone who, who would be very happy to be named this is uh, a friend of ours matt watson who is a a, a great uh, singer and and songwriter and uh, i love his work and you might have seen he was on one of the uh, shambles uh, festivals quite early on and he just says as a long time sufferer of depression and anxiety 
anxiety, uh, which I'll happily uh, and openly admit, I found this period of time a roller coaster of a ride. Currently struggling with it, staring at a now empty diary, I'm allowing myself to let it on the bus and be mindful of how I feel, but not let it drive the bus. However, I'd love to know if this is a healthy way to manage what is going on at the moment. So, of course, working in the entertainment industry, like many people, you know, Matt is, and, and many people in other industries as well, finds himself going, right, there's no work. And he's now dealing also with his, uh, with, with depression and anxiety. Uh. You know, I, yeah, tough. <laughs> you know, really, really, really tough. Um, you know, I've, kind of what I've done is, um, and my depression has got, has got, you know, much worse during this period. I'm, I'm back at work, you know, a little bit. Um, but it's got significant, it's significantly worse. Um, what I've found that's helped is to kind of zone my day and zone the areas in where I live. So, you know, my husband and I are kind of like going in different rooms and then coming together in the evening, but trying to zone my day into different kinds of activities. So, you know, nine to one, I'll read my book, you know, and then 11 to one, I'll have a walk. And then, you know, and then six o'clock, my husband and I will swap, you know, from the bedroom to the sitting room and then we'll come back to get, you know, and unless I do that, it, it starts, starts to take over, you know, because I've got too much time and depression loves kind of, you know, lack of structure and, and boredom and, and lack of meaning, you know, not having a meaning in our lives, which is very true at the moment. You know, so if we're, you know, magicians or whatever we do, we've got some kind of meaning attached to that. And that really helps because meaning is about hope. And, um, you know, hope is the one thing that will kind of kind of trump, you know, trump depression. So, yeah, so what I've done is, is zoned my day, not always successfully. And there are days where I've just been in bed going, I ain't going to zone my day today. But days where I've done it and managed to do it, it's helped. So I will, you know, go up and, and, and have a cycle and do my exercise and then you know, have a bath and then, you know, I'll have a couple of hours of TV, a couple of hours of reading and then trying to create structure within that. But also kind of within that, do something that feels meaningful. So I do some writing or connect with somebody. And what I found is the days that I haven't had any meaning in my life, even in small ways, so I haven't sort of, you know, felt like I've, help somebody or you know whatever it might be um or any kind of meaning really have been the toughest so yeah i think my advice would be to try and get meaning in in a different way than you would do normally so i work in i work in a library normally which is great and i you know can help people and do that and that's just got, you know that was just obliterated um but actually i found different ways of doing that so you know even things like responding to twitter posts or you know writing small articles or you know commenting on stuff that people are experiencing at the moment that all that all creates meaning and then you feel like a kind of useful person again and that that really helps with depression Thank you, James. That's uh, that's really useful. And, and tell everyone again that James is uh, his, his new book, How to Tell Depression to Piss Off, is uh, it's out now, isn't it, James? It's Little Brown, is it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, it is out. And also the recovery letters, which he edited as well. And uh, Rebecca, your uh, we can get the text of of, of your play. That is, uh, I've got it, uh, and it's uh, sometimes I laugh like my sister. It, 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 there's not a recording, is there? Well, there is a recording. It's in three parts on YouTube. And I, I have been gently sending it to people when they ask me for it. I should probably make it more public. I've been thinking of doing actually doing, actually an, online doing an online version because why not? I could deliver it to camera. But yes. 
Well, that is. That I, I would highly recommend people getting the text to that and having a look at that. And also, as I mentioned right at the start, uh, your talk at TEDx Brixton, uh, which you can see. Um, thank you both very much. Uh, very much. Very uh, useful. Um, and uh, Josie, uh, what are you up to for the rest of the day? Well, I am participating in an online chess tournament with some other comedians, so I need to play a couple of chess games while the baby sleeps, and then I'm going to try, try and get it. some writing done, which I'm excited about. It's been really helpful just to hear uh, to hear today and think about today, and then, you know, you take that for yourself and you think about your own experiences and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, it's so useful, so helpful to kind of think of different ways to approach and deal with these things and examine these things. Well, thank so, you very much. And do some writing about it. Yeah, well, we are going to see something you've created in a moment, which uh, oh, will give people ideas of what yeah, they can I mean, do uh, in these moments. Very much uh, a passenger <laughs> on that bus. I was not driving it, but I was happy to be on the bus. Well, on uh, tomorrow we've got uh, Sean McAuliffe uh, with us and uh, and Jess Hitchcock. And uh, also, just remind you again, we have a tip jar at the bottom of this, uh, and we use that as a fund. I think we've raised about twenty five thousand so far for uh, art centres and artists. And also, if you can subscribe to our Patreon, that's how we're going to keep making loads and loads of stuff, uh, science, art, all over the shop. Um, that is very useful. And um, so that's yeah. We're now going to see. I, I will also mention because of what we've been talking about, because we've been talking about uh, grief. I'm sure you. Have all seen this because it's been it, it's had a huge amount of publicity this morning but i would highly recommend that you read uh rory Kinnear's uh piece today um about the uh, death of his sister karina uh from covid19 it's uh I, I think it's a very very important uh piece and another thing as well that i would highly recommend is uh london review of books rupert beale it's online uh who we had on our covid19 uh special uh who is uh both with, in the field of study of covid19 and actually active in it at the moment he has written a very uh, good piece about what is going on ab about mistakes and things that we need to be thinking about and because people are being led down a lot of alleys of misinformation or by people who just don't really know what they're talking about uh, i would highly recommend looking at that as well um thanks very much everyone for watching we'll see you Karen, again what are you doing robin what are you doing today oh, do you know what? Um, we're doing a sound test uh mic test for uh, infinite monkey cage which we're going to hopefully be uh, uh recording um tomorrow and then i'm reading about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence as usual oh, lovely um, we'll have a good time <laughs> then i'm going to a rowing club with mark gatis aren't i <laughs> anyway here is uh north macedonia's entry for uh the isolation song contest this is the kind of thing you too can do in your own home and if you enjoyed it go and donate and put the hashtag vote mkd and we might win we won't, won't win. win there's some very impressive entries it's a whole <laughs> aola scam all, all over, over again bye-bye everyone Hi, nice to meet you, Keith. I just want to dance. Dance and sing and love and dance and sing love. Fly like an eagle with a penchant for dance. Keith is the name of my father's friend. I'm lost in a sea of dance and Keith. Wasps, I never liked the way they buzz. Buzz, the second man to land on the moon. Moon is a word that rhymes with balloon. Keith is the name of my father's friend. My father's friend is hitting on me. He has a goatee, he likes to swim. The rings of Saturn shine bright like the sunshine. Did I mention Keith is hitting on me? Egypt. Where the wolves come from?
concoction. Medusa. Heart starts and sing and love and Keith has a Honda. Fly like an eagle, Keith is outside my house. My father has no memory of this friendship with Keith. The rings of Jupiter are golden and shaped like rings. No fun, no sun, no problem. No fun, no sun, no problem. Wasps going crazy in their hive of lies. Lies, I've been telling Keith that I'm not at home. Home under hammer is my favorite show. Father says that Keith died in 2004. Sorry, what? My father's friend is hitting on me. He smokes a pipe and loves Stephen King. I mean, who doesn't? The rings of Neptune are a thing in space. Keith has eaten all of the drivers with nuts. No fun, no sun, no problem. No fun, no sun, no problem. No problem. Sorry, where did all these wasps come from? Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget cosmicshambles.com slash stay at home to catch up on all the previous episodes, find out who's coming up on upcoming episodes and to leave a tip for acts and artists and venues who are hit hardest at the moment. And if you'd like to support us at the Cosmic Shambles Network, patreon.com slash cosmic shambles.